0: Hey, tripod peoples. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well on this first day of February. Don't forget to pay rent. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, you know, just some 2018 goals over here. Um, I'm actually here to introduce a new tripod extra segment that I'm really excited about featuring a conversation I had with the writer Nathaniel Rich. Uh, Nathaniel and I met last year at a storytelling series that I produce called Bring Your Own and he told a story at one of those live events. Um, We kept in touch after that and he told me about his new novel, King Zeno, which just came out. Uh, This is Nathaniel Rich's third book. And because it's a work of historical fiction that takes place in New Orleans circa 1918, thought I'd be interested. Uh, Of course, I was interested in that. And I was especially interested because the book centers around the construction of the industrial canal. And in this NOLA versus nature series that we've been doing, we've been talking about levee breaches. We've been talking about pumps and drainage systems. And the finale of this NOLA versus nature series is going to be a big episode on the building of the industrial canal and the impacts of that project. So our conversation focuses mostly on why he wanted to write a book during this time period of 1918 and why he became so fascinated with the building of the canal itself. Um, But we talk about a bunch of other stuff, too, including the other plot points of the novel from the emergence of jazz during this era to the Spanish flu that came in at the same time to the Axeman murderer, a notorious serial killer in New Orleans who went around killing people in their homes with an axe. Uh, it's really, it's crazy stuff, and all of this was happening while the city was moving on from World War I and embarking on its most ambitious and precarious infrastructure project. So it's a lot, and King Zeno, this new novel out by Nathaniel Rich, weaves in and out of all these stories with three main protagonists and that paint a really vivid picture of this time period. So go and find that book, but for now, here's my conversation with Nathaniel Rich. So, Nathaniel Rich, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on Tripod.
1: Thrilled to be here.
0: Uh, we met through other avenues, but but it was only a matter of time before we entered into the sphere.
1: Yeah, it was fate.
0: It was fate. It really was. Um, and actually, you wrote me an email telling me about this book that just came out, King Zeno, because it takes place during the building of the Industrial Canal 100 years ago, and uh, I also happened to be thinking about the industrial canal for a tripod story. So here we are. It could not have been more perfect. Yeah, I
1: volunteered myself as an industrial canal expert.
0: <laughs> and then quickly you were like, actually, I have nothing yeah. to really say about Actually,
1: this. much of my expertise uh, is stuff I made up and then over the years forgot that I made it up <laughs> and... So everything has to be, you know, verified,
0: right? Because you are um, proud—not proud—that this book took you so long to write, right?
1: Yeah, it took me about five or six years to write, and so I was really doing the research about the industrial canal as looking back in 2012. Wow! So, um, f- and from there, I, you know, I continued to to read about it and read histories of the period or or primary documents from the period, but I. Uh, I haven't been in the historical research phase of of the project for a long time, but I've been thinking about it uh, deeply for for six years now.
0: Yeah. Last year at some point, I did an entire tripod episode that just focused on historical fiction um, because I had interviewed all these writers of historical nonfiction. And it was amazing to me to hear these people talk about the type of anxiety that they experience writing (laughs) this genre And um, I think this is your first historical fiction novel, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the thing about historical fiction, the rule, which I think is the rule for really any fiction, is that you have to have a um, logically consistent world, a world that has, I should say, internal consistency. So that doesn't mean that it has to be accurate to actual history. Um, but you have to make it very clear to the reader, you know, how faithful you are being. So obviously if you're doing some kind of a speculative fiction, um, that gets murkier and you have to define exactly where the fiction stops and history begins. Um, what I wanted to do and what interest me interested me most um, about this period and, and, and writing fiction about it um, was to use... The architecture of historical reality, at least as we know it through the public record, um, and adhere to it rigorously. So, with, with uh, King Zeno, you know, I, I'll joke that that you know I made up a lot of things and that my, my memory of the historical detail is not wonderful because it was never you know uh, I wasn't writing an actual history. On the other hand, I did take pains to make sure that every historical fact, every verifiable fact. Um, was accurate and I found that that, you know part of the fun you're basically creating a kind of a puzzle for yourself Uh, and so there are a lot of newspaper headlines there are a lot of historical incidents that occur and historical figures and so all of that is accurate Mm -hmm. Um, and the fiction goes on um, outside of that in the in the private lives of the characters
0: so what types of thoughts were going through your head when you were deciding to write this type of book that, you know, what, what were the things that honestly really scared you?
1: Well, I was terrified about a lot of the, the structural problems that that created because I, I had a, you know, a plot that that moved not only with the uh, digging of the industrial canal, but with these um, Axeman murders uh, when a, a man was going around, um, hacking people to death with an axe was going around at the same time, and it's also this pivotal moment in the history of jazz in America, and, and essentially the point at which it crosses over um, into a popular form. And you have the Spanish flu, and then a number number of other minor incidents, another sort of related crime spree that was going on. And so, I had to make sure that the you know the dramatic the plot. Um, Stayed within the date, the hard dates that I had with all of these historical events.
0: So I want to talk about that year, 1918, and choosing to focus the story around this time period. Something that, as you've mentioned, hasn't been written about at length. Why is this a year that you decided to kind of zone in on, and uh, and why does it seem like a central, important year, especially now that we're looking at it exactly a hundred years ago?
1: my original motivations were more practical than romantic or <laughs> poetic but but i really was drawn to the industrial canal story the canal itself is very much a symbol of the city's uh, relationship with nature but it's also a fascinating period in that yeah you have the spanish flu comes in and completely uh stops life in new orleans for a number of months and then you also have, uh, it's right after the, the war, it's right after Storyville closes. So there's a, a, a strange reshuffling of the city's sort of lower culture. Um, again, it's underground culture.
0: And Prohibition is- And
1: Prohibition is right on, on, the,
0: on its way.
1: It's a point at which the city feels like it's on the cusp of rediscovering its historical place as the leading American port city and one of the leading economics centers. Of the country, it feels to me that like it's the beginning of our modern age. That it was the, the point at which, by the end of this this transformation, the, the stage was set for for everything that has happened since. Um, you know, and I'm only being slightly hyperbolic. Right. I would say when I say that.
0: <laughs> well, no, I mean you you really kind of encapsulate all of that in this in this book with what I see as kind of the three main protagonists as this um, this young aspiring jazz musician who uh, really leaves a life of petty crime to go try to make his living digging this canal, this new project where there's all of a sudden a lot of uh, job opportunities as horrific and labor you know, laborious as they are. You have this World War I veteran who um, it becomes this police detective or goes back to being one. Uh, who is, you know, trying to solve this axe murderer serial killer case that has the entire city completely freaked out. And then you have this kind of matriarchal female entrepreneur <laughs> um, behind the business aspect of the canal. And I'm interested in how you decided to look at the, the scope of this year and and wanting to focus in on this post-world War one period and and tell it through these main characters. what 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 story do they tell together for you?
1: Yeah, that's the big question I guess I, I think f- it, for me I, I felt that to get at the whole of the reality of this period that you couldn't do it with just one character and all the, these three characters are held together by this shared, um passion for some kind of life beyond life and um you know, whether you call it immortality or or legacy or just this sort of blind ambition for the future, um, or an ambition for reinvention, um, which seemed is very was for me very consonant with the, the feeling of the city at this time. Um, they all had that in common and and I felt that you know jazz was, was coming into its own, the city felt like it was coming into its own, um, and yet there are these um, ghosts of the past that can't totally be ignored. And so you see that in the canal as they're digging it up, they're going back in, in time and, and finding old forests and old um, uh, geological periods uh, that that people don't most people don't know or don't think about very much as existing here. Um, and you have the jazz musician's own sort of past that he's trying that he's struggling with, um, and of course the Bill Bastrop, the the, the uh, detective character, has his own sorted um, history in the war that he's trying to um, move past, although he's he's marked by it forever. And so they all seem to me to be part of this this larger um, the same psychic world and of of trying to you know create a new future, create a a limitless future um, and and try to uh, avoid thinking of the past and And this is not only is this to me the New Orleans story, but it's really the american story and um and it's a kind of folly, of course, uh, mm-hmm. this idea of just a total reinvention um without penalty, without the past dragging you back
0: right and And it sounds like the the industrial canal, as a project, was really in that vein, and 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 marketed to the city as something that was going to propel the community forward into the future, into this new level of success. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you discovered in the research of the ways that the project was described in the press and posters and any type of paraphernalia that sh- you know kind of let people know this was something that they should be behind?
1: Yeah. Well, the canal wasn't wasn't described as just a, a, a smart land project or even purely um, you know, as a good thing for the port um, or for the financial life of the city. It was, it was presented as a kind of gut check about the, the identity of the city and, of course, with that the identity of New Orleanians. Politicians, people on the dock board and so on who were, who were calling for this were, were asking, making appeals to New Orleanians about what kind of city do you want to have here? you know, do we want to be the second-rate backwater, or do we want to reclaim our proper position um, at the heart of American uh, military and economic life? It's deeply patriotic, deeply, um, you know, progress-minded, and at the same time, deeply delusional (laughs) in a lot of ways as well.
0: So what was the argument that this project is what was going to save those millions of dollars that otherwise were losing and kind of slipping away from this majestic port city?
1: Well, there was, first of all, the argument that no one really questioned that because they didn't have a canal, they were losing a lot of money. So that's part of it. Then there's the idea that if you put a canal there, you're creating all of this new, desirable um, property. And so people are going to move in or companies will move in in the area adjacent to the canal, which at that point was a cypress swamp. Just the sheer economic activity of building the canal was seen as a major boon to the city. I mean, they'd spend millions and millions of dollars, and just an incredible amount of infrastructure work uh, was required. And so those were all part of it. Um, They're all ingredients, but the the general thrust of it was if we're a bigger port, if we can accommodate bigger ships, we will be bigger (laughs) is the logic. (laughs) And not to do so is shooting ourselves in the foot.
0: Right. So just eventually breaking it down to bigger plus bigger equals bigger.
1: Essentially it's the argument that you hear today about tax cuts or anything else in sort of supply side economics where, you know, if we just put in some money and we attract companies here, everyone will benefit. The tax mm-hmm. base will grow
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's nothing nothing can stop us once we do that. Right. Of course they start digging the canal and what after a year they realize it's not big enough. We have to double it. And then why stop at just doubling it? Why not go even farther? So they kept recalibrating it, kept asking for more bonds, and kept taxing people more. But they it, it ultimately got it done.
0: And realized, uh, as they broke ground, how difficult it was going to be, right? They discovered, maybe for the first time, these massive... Underground forests, where, you know, I love their descriptions in the book of just talking about machinery breaking, trying to cut through the cypress wood that was 20, 30 feet below the ground. I mean, how did you come across this?
1: Yeah, well, first they found quicksand uh, about 28 uh, feet down. They found 10 <laughs> feet of ki- That's quicksand.
0: That's crazy. That's so crazy.
1: And then they discovered that below that, there was a second layer of quicksand, another 10 feet down, about 50 feet underground. And then, and meanwhile, they're also finding these old forests um, from essentially prehistoric times, and so so it's essentially these layers of quicksand forest, quicksand forest, and
0: it's like a dip at Trader Joe's. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and and as they go, people are getting hurt. The equipment's not working. The equipment's not made for that. You know, they'll dig out when it gets to the quicksand. They'll dig out the sand, and then more rushes back in. Men are drowning in the sand. Um, they have to develop new technologies to deal with this kind of land. They they expected to find rocks, which they were sort of ready to deal with. There aren't really any rocks there. It's all these old trees that, because of the dampness, are preser- or preserved um, in pretty strong shape. And so the pump they were using um, would clog every time it would get these big prehistoric tree stumps in it. So they actually asked um Baldwin Wood to build a better pump. <laughs> um and he did. Wow. And a more powerful pump that could deal with stumps. And
0: he was like, yeah, I can do that.
1: Yeah, he figured that out. <laughs> um and so that sped things up, but it wasn't, you know, flawless. So it's it's just this enormous um destruction of of land but of course it's seen as a as essentially a beautification project
0: something else that I love about two of these three main protagonists is that they're on either end of this project right you have uh Isidore Izzy who is digging the canal who's in the pit as it's called seeing people getting hurt seeing people you know getting sucked in and then you have Beatrice who's running the whole thing uh from afar for me seeing those two characters showed you know the The people that were making this thing happen across the board, right? who Who was building and in the pit actually digging the canal, and who were on the other end, you know, uh, passing money back and forth?
1: I mean, it's a complicated uh, network of people. You have the folks from the city. you have the dock board, um, which was this municipal body that oversaw the finances of the of the canal. And then you had the con- the contractors, subcontractors, all the way down to the diggers at the bottom. Yeah, I like the idea of having a person on either end of this uh, colossal struggle with with uh, nature. You know, you have a very different view of things when you're at the bottom of the pit and you're struggling with uh, quicksand or underground forests than you do. When you're, you know, at the rim or even beyond, sitting in an office somewhere, trying to finance uh, a bond, right? Um, you know, that's always the story of these, these huge hubristic land projects. Is we don't think about it them on an individual level, even as we, you know, personify the city. The people who are actually working um, on the canal is just tools or less.
0: You know, what do you think about as you're actually crossing? this man-made river now that you've done all of this research
1: well I I mean one of one of the things that it accomplished was was to make the city believe that it ended at the canal Um, so I think when you cross that canal or I think when many people many New Orleans cross the canal um, there's a sense of moving into some other territory um, and of course, you see that in the way that, that you know, people talk about the Lower Ninth Ward or at least the you know what has come to symbolize to people outside of New Orleans for, for certain. Um, so it's it's made exotic this this parcel of land that is very much part of the city, um, obviously ge- not only geographically, but, um, you know, important to its economy and to its position on the river, um, and its, its significance as a port and so on. Um, and certainly, its relationship with the with the lake, just their whole reason why the city's here. And so it's 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 been it, it served as a kind of amputation. <clears throat> and uh, and the other thing about it is you can't see it really the canal. It's not only this huge scar that goes across the entire city, but it's it's largely invisible. Mm-hmm. So I think it furthered this this strange aspect of the city's relationship with water, which is that you know despite its centrality to you know everything about the city's life public life its politics its culture um, its history its reason for being it's largely invisible and and I think in the same way that um, you know we we pump all the water out every time it rains and how that's been the model for the last century or so um, it's a continuation of this kind of strange, uh, water blindness that the city has and um the canals is good an example as of that as, as anything
0: so and you know you might not fully be able to answer this but you know we talk about all these glorious uh ambitions and honorable reasons advertised for this thing and it seems that You know, the way it's discussed now and even as this kind of this was supposed to be this, it was supposed to be this, it was supposed to be this. Why didn't this thing do what it was supposed to do?
1: Yeah, well, the fascinating thing about one of the fascinating things about the way that the canal was written about at the time was um, at the end of these sort of encomiums that you would read about how great the canal was going to be or how great work was going or even right as it was finished and completed, um, what a triumph it was. They move very quickly to what are the next improvements that we can make, um, and that's the word improvements, right? So we're improving uh, nature, and uh, you know, in this one pamphlet, I remember it goes on to it takes a national view and it says, well, more improvements are underway, you know, in New York Harbor and Mobile Bay, Iowa River, talking about dams and canals and shortcuts and so on um, and this is nothing new I mean this is the story of the development of the of the continent I mean the, the settlers came here with an idea of, of taming wilderness um, which was understood uh, to have its biblical connotations of you know not to be trusted sinister um, amoral wild and so on um, and so this this taming of nature I think we're only beginning uh, as a as a society to to move out of that view of the natural world. Um, and so in terms of the canal, I don't think its economic economic promise was ever realized. Um, but it did lead to more canals and more uh, shortcuts and improvements, um, each one more disastrous than the last, um, or at least adding, Uh, insult to injury.
0: It's funny. I don't know. I'm just thinking about this now. This is going meta into the theme of uh, man versus nature. But in a lot of ways, um, rejecting jazz as a genre was this rejection of this natural sound, right? I mean, I'm thinking of other ways that the book looks at this taming quality and what society should be, and how society progresses, and um, there are very specific reasons that people in New Orleans, as, as this book shows, embrace this new genre of music, but um, you know, many of us know in American history, jazz was not embraced, um, and so was that something that you thought about?
1: Absolutely, I mean, the way that jazz was, was written about, to the extent that it was written about um, in 1918, um, f- for white audiences, for you know, by the editorial board, for instance, of the the New Orleans Times Picayune, was as not uh, less as a musical form and more as an affront to civilization. That it was this primitive, um, crass, anti musical uh, development that was coming out of the inner city, essentially out of Black New Orleans, um, and. You know, they wrote about it with this kind of florid r- racism uh, as this uh, despicable affront on on taste and and really on civilization. I mean, they spell it out that way. <clears throat> this is a threat to civilization, and they uh, this editorial um, goes on to to call for suppressing the music in its cradle. Um, it's this idea of sort of smothering the the baby wow. uh, at, in the place that it's born. Um, and that only starts to change in this around this time, but it's, I think it tracks very closely to the, the conversation about canal and the swamps and also the, you know, the pumping system and uh, this need to control uh, these primitive forces. And, and of course, with sort of heavy racial overtones, that's part of this rejection of of jazz and, a, and an equation of this new um, innovative form, with some kind of older, darker uh, energy uh, that, that, you know, in in the name of progress, uh, higher society is trying to stamp out.
0: Mm. So I don't know if this was planned since the book took you a little bit longer to write than you thought, but it is now. It just came out. Congratulations. Thank you. And it is the tricentennial year. So, uh, I mean, what's cool about that is, is that it takes place exactly 100 years ago, um, and that also it's this book about New Orleans in this very specific time period where we're talking about ourselves even more than we usually do. (laughs) I I want your honest opinion. I mean, this is something I've really been thinking about a lot after spending almost three years talking about it. Is the tricentennial important to you? Is this something that when you realized it was coming out this year— uh, you know, how did you feel about that? And also, what are your thoughts on on this massive, massive attention to this specific anniversary?
1: I think any any occasion for um, turning towards uh, our historical reality, especially in in a time that seems so divorced from any knowledge of history, um, is something to be embraced. <laughs> Um, and so I th- I think that it's exciting that people, um, here are are interested in, and clearly excited about, you know, reexamining aspects of the city's history, celebrating some aspects of it, and also asking hard questions about about others. I mean, I think that you see that both in, you know, the way that the newspapers today cover these,, um, historical moments and these, these huge retrospective, um, you know, views of the city's history, but also you see it in the monuments debate. Um, and so I think that's a great thing. I think it's ex- it's extremely dangerous um not to not to do that. And uh, you know that in some ways was part of the original sin of the of the canal is not understanding the history of the land, or at least not reckoning with it. Um, and understanding how that in- informs the, the, the land's future, especially in a city that, left alone, would be continuing to change, you know, if it weren't for hemming in the Mississippi River and, um, you know, if man hadn't settled here, the, the landscape would look so different. It's very new land. Um, so I think that's all great. I mean, I think the fact that the, the novel's coming out on this anniversary is serendipitous, I suppose. I don't know if it really means anything. Um, but it, it was fascinating to me, you know, in, inhabiting this this time 100 years ago uh, to, to recognize how little things have changed in a lot of ways. Um, you know, some of the terminology is different, uh, but I don't think our relationship with nature has changed very much. I think the racial conversation in the city is sadly similar. Um, although, again, I think there's a little, some of, some of these dynamics are a little more cloaked and, um, and I think the way that the, the sort of the city's power structure, the way things get done here, um, has has been changing. But there are some uncomfortable parallels as well with uh, this period as well. And um, you know, this is a city where you feel the past in a profound way, and, and in a way that's rare in, in among you know great American cities um and so that's one of the things that I love about it and that drew me here and I think it's it's rightfully celebrated and I think that's why this anniversary has been so um embraced here because I think people here recognize all of this and there's a, there's an intense continuity with the past um and I think it's healthy also to examine, you know, parts of the past that aren't we're not as proud of.
0: Right. Do you feel now that you want to write another book that takes place here? Or do you feel like you need a serious break?
1: I feel like, um,
0: for instance, I'm going to Poland next year and I'm just going to do a three year project (laughs) about Eastern Europe. And
1: (laughs) I'll tell you what interests me. I I don't think I would write. I don't think I, I, the thing about, I was very, very sensitive about uh, reluctant to write about the city, not having grown up here. And I and also knowing how strongly people um, feel about uh, different aspects of the city's identity, so I don't. It'd be hard for me to imagine, especially writing a novel about contemporary New Orleans um, or you know post Katrina New Orleans. I felt with this story, I could be the authority on 1918 New Orleans. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think I, I came to this very reluctantly, and I, on, I only did it once I felt that that I had to. Um, it, there's a sense of inevitability uh, I find when writing a, no- a novel that at a certain point you can't not, not do it, um, and I and I felt that way with with King Zeno.
0: Nathaniel Rich just came out with his third novel, King Zeno. It is out in bookstores across the city, and I recommend it. It's a great great read. There's so much in here, and it was a pleasure to read the book, and it was a pleasure to have you here today. So thank you.
1: Thank you. It was a it was a joy.
0: Tripod is a production of WWNO in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Next week, we're closing out our NOLA vs. Nature series with a big episode on the Industrial Canal. You'll hear from Nathaniel Rich again, as well as many others that can talk about the immediate and long-term impacts of this project. In the meantime, keep up with us on social media at Tripodnola. And don't forget to let us know what stories you want to hear in this tricentennial year. It's here. So hit us up. I'm Lane Captain Levinson, and I'll tripod you later.